Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And uh, it's special. What Paul does here is he pauses. He, he stops at the end of verse 1, and he goes on and expounds with something a little bit different, something very personal in the next 12 verses before he picks up on a prayer in verse 14. And so I want to start by asking you this question, because this is really what the passage really unfolds before us, is you ever wonder what goes on, or let me say it like this, what should go on in the mind and the heart of your pastor or the evangelist or whoever the person is delivering the word of God, preaching the gospel. Have you ever wondered what goes in the mind or heart or what should be there? This morning we're going to learn that. Paul really unfolds what's inside himself. Uh, when he's preparing and delivering the word of God, there's going to be a certain attitude that undergirds it that you really don't see but should still get the reality in that person who, who preaches the gospel, who delivers the word of God, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, the Apostle Paul, a pastor, elder, if you are handling accurately the Word of God, uh, there are certain attributes and characteristics that must be authentic in the life of the one who delivers God's Word. Our pastor, this morning, we are given basically a comprehensive oh, understanding of what went on inside the mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul. He pauses to give us this. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins to launch into prayer. He says, for this reason, you want to look at your Bibles at verse 1, chapter 3. For this reason, in other words, for what I've just written, for this reason, based on the inclusion of Gentiles and Jews worshiping together, being part of the body together. Because of this, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he kind of pauses for him, he stops. He doesn't carry on that thought until verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees. So basically what he's saying in verse 1, for the sake of you Gentiles, because you are part of the body of Christ, I want to begin praying for you. Because they were a minority in the early church. But we'll talk about that next week. Because for now we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 13, this parenthetical statement of Paul, whereby he not only describes his ministry, he describes the ministry. The person behind the ministry of the word. So if we'll stand together, we will read out loud uh, verses 1 through 13 this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I call the bondservant of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. 
so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Let's pray. Wow, Father in heaven, what a perspective of your word. What a perspective from a deliverer of your word, the Apostle Paul. And God, I pray that you would give us not just insight, but as we're reading these, these different characteristics of an authentic approach to preaching and teaching your word, that God, you would, you would mold these attributes, you would mold these characteristics, these godly, Christ-like attitudes in our own hearts, oh God. So Father, as, as we explain the scriptures together, as we, we hear them explained together, God, I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts as, as the potter putting pressure points inside of us, giving us conviction and so that we don't walk away being only hearers, but God, we walk away wanting to be changed, wanting to be doers, saying, God, have this affected my life so that I can say these things with a genuineness and with an authenticity so I can be authentic and true and real. So God, please, uh, through the Apostle Paul, through his own personal exposure of himself and what's inside of him, bless our hearts, dear God, conform us further into the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin by looking at the context this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. In verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason, I always use the New American Standard because this is the one I'm most comfortable with. I've been doing it for years, so this old guy's not going to change there. Okay. But New American says, For this reason, literally means because of this, on account of this. Well, because of what? On account of what? Of what he just wrote about in chapter 2. Because of the Gentiles now being included into the body of Christ. And who is he writing to, by the way? Gentiles at the church in Ephesus, right? So he's writing to Gentiles. And so it's because of your inclusion, because you were partakers with Jews in the riches of Christ, in the blessings of grace. He said, I want to pray. Verse 14. However, he says, pauses. He stops. Because if both groups are brought together, he's wanting to pray for the Gentiles. And that's why it says in verse 14, I'll bow my knees. However, we have this gap. We have this digression for 12 verses that we need to go over. And what they do is they explain the nature of gospel ministry. They explain, these 12 verses explain the nature of the gospel ministry. And by gospel ministry, I'm going to widen the definition of that for a moment. It means gospel preaching, teaching and preaching the word of God. Getting into the scriptures in general. Which begins with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also getting up and saying, thus saith the Lord. Getting people into the scriptures. And so what is the nature of that? What should be in the heart and the mind of those who minister to the word of God to God's people? That's what we learn here in this passage for us this morning. I want you to know this. There is a shift in personal pronouns. That directs us here. That's how we know there's a soul shift in the context. Notice verse 2, to me. Verse 3, I wrote. Verse 4, my insight. Verse 7, I was made a minister. 
Also in verse 7, to me according. Verse 8, to me. Paul now brings attention to himself. But it's not because he's a narcissist. It's not because of that. And it's also not because he's defending himself like he did in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 10, 11, 12, excuse me, where they were questioning his apostleship. They were, they were questioning his abilities. And he spent three chapters writing to the church at Corinth who questioned him and his apostleship. He's not doing that here. He is simply expressing and explaining himself. He's not just saying, here's my ministry, but here is the man behind the ministry. Here's what his attitude should look like. Here's what it, what it should be. And so he's exposing himself in these verses. He's kind of pulling back the curtains so we can get a peek into his heart and his soul. And he's doing this for the sake of you Gentiles. Now why would he do that? Why would he pause before he prays? Here's why. I think we learn this in verse 1 where we come across, for this reason, the sake of you Gentiles. Why was it for their sake? It's because you're at the early church. The mother church, so to speak, is the church of Jerusalem, which was made up of who? Jews. And so now these Gentiles are, so to speak, being grafted in. The, Paul is the apostle to the who? The Gentiles. So now you have this great cultural barrier, which Paul just wrote about, that Christ himself tore down, but now they're having to start to experience it in real life. As Gentiles come into the church. So think of it this way. It's hard for us. Gentiles in the early, in the early church were the minority group. They were the minority group. The church was almost fully Jewish at the early of the onset. And now the gospel is going out. Even remember, even Peter had a hard time going to the Gentiles, didn't he? God gave him a vision. He had to see it like what, three times. And, it, and it, before he went to Cornelius' household, who was like a Samaritan, you know, half Jew and half Gentile, right? Peter had a hard time even going that far, and now you have the Apostle Paul taking the gospel everywhere. And so the reason this is here is to give them confidence, to give them comfort, to assure them that his ministry is valid and legit. That's from God. It's by God's grace. You know, being a minority, you know, knowing that you still are hesitant in the church, being a minority in the early days of the church because you, 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 you're not received fully. You're not treated as one. And we got to understand that was really going on in the early church. Christians, Jewish Christians, had a hard time receiving fully Gentile Christians. And so Paul in chapter 1 and chapter 2 just goes way out of the way to explain we have everything in common in Christ. It doesn't matter your background. The gospel's international, not national. Nationalism really doesn't have a place in the church. So this is Paul. He's, he's reassuring them of his ministry to them. And in these 12 verses, we're given 10 characteristics of authentic gospel ministry, of gospel preaching, of preaching the word of God. And of these 10, some are going to be real short, and then others I'll spend a little bit, a few more minutes in. So hold on to your hats, so to speak. Okay? My goodness. All right. Let's start at the beginning. Number one, ministry comes from God. Verse two. 
very far in first part of verse 2, excuse me. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. It's by God's grace. Actually, the word given to me is it's, it's from the word, root word grace. It was given to Paul. So the minister, one who ministers the word of God, whether you're an evangelist, a pastor, teacher, when you handle the word of God, it is given to you. That service, to do that task, is something that is given to you directly from God. And notice what he says, that stewardship of God's grace. Stewardship means management of a household. That word is, that Greek word is often used in that kind of context as one who manages a household. Responsibility of the preacher, of the evangelist, is to protect, to guard, and persevere, and to, excuse me, preserve its occupants. But it also involves protecting the content of the gospel. <laughs> protecting the content of the truth. So here is the job, the task of the gospel preacher. He, he protects the body by guarding the truth. He protects the body by guarding the truth. If you say you have a pastor and he does not promote, protect, guard, and bring, bring forth the word of God, then he is not protecting you. You see that? So the question is, if I was in seminary and I had students before me and said, what does it mean to be a pastor? I said, number one, you protect your flock. You want to know how you do it? You get your nose in the book. You get your nose in the book. You soak it up. Because if you are not growing in the Word, if you are not studying the Word, if you are not living the Word, and then you're not going to really be bringing forth the Word, then you're not going to be guarding it, and you're not, therefore not going to be protecting the people that God has put under you, so to speak. Under your teaching. The genitive also supports this in the Greek. It's a it's the form of grammar. It refers to the content of grace. So gospel ministry involves protecting the household of God by protecting the content of the gospel of God. Number two. Also in verse two. The last part, two words for you. For you. For you. So why does God assign, why did God assign Paul the apostleship? Why did he give him that ministry? Why does God call someone to preach the gospel? Why does he call a pastor? It's not for himself. It's for you. It's for the church. It's the body of Christ. It's for the benefit of others. The preacher, the teacher, anyone who ministers the gospel, ministers the word, does not preach it or explain it for self-promotion or self-recognition or any financial benefit of their own. Write down on inside of that a parallel passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me read it. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to these words. Get there myself. I'm sticking together. Listen to this. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, a different teaching, and does not agree with sound words, well, what does that mean, sound words? What, what does that look like? Those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with doctrine conforming to godliness. Biblical doctrine, sound doctrine, always results in godliness. So if you're in a, you're in a group of people and godliness is not being promoted or godliness is not the result, you got to wonder what they're teaching, right? Okay? Anyway, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. And constant friction between men of the prayed mind and the prayed of the truth and deprived of the truth, who supposed that godliness 
is a means of gain. Whoa, wait a minute, time out. There are people in the church who suppose that godliness is a means of greater gain. Well, I can get you godly and maybe I get something back for it. No. Look at verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain, but accompanied by contentment. In other words, the goal, the motive of the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, anyone who handles the word of God, is that it results in the godliness of those who hear. Expecting not wanting anything in return because that's the goal. That's what I want. If the preaching, if my preaching of the word of God, my explaining the scriptures causes you to deal with sin in your own life, praise God, that's enough for me. That makes me happy. Now we're going to get to the preacher a little bit later on, okay, in my own life as well. We'll get there, believe, believe me. You're going to see that big time. As he goes on here in chapter 6, verse 8, here's contentment. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Men who preach it are selfish, self-centered, and they do it for themselves because they want to gain, period, according to this passage. That's it. And so they're going to tell you, you too can have an abundant life, meaning a better car, a bigger house, a better this, a bigger, you can have your best life now. False, false, false. Yeah. Right there. Very simple. Obviously, you know what's really neat here? Paul deals with this way back then. We're dealing with it today. Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. Let's go back. Okay? Let's go on to number three. His authority is the word of God. Verses three through five. His authority is the word of God. That by revelation it was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, earlier in chapter two, okay? By referring to this, when you, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, <clears throat> as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Now, the mystery, See that word, the mystery in verse 3? He's going to explain what that is. He's going to give us the content of that in verse 6, but I'm not there yet. So just hold on a second, okay? Let's look at 3, 4, and 5, because he's really not going to give us the answer to what the mystery is until verse 6. So what does he mean in 3, 5, and 6? He's saying, for right now, I want to tell you the source of the mystery. It's revelation from God. I got it from him. What's he, why is he saying this? He's instilling confidence in his readers who are a, maybe not a minority in the church in Ephesus, but they were a minority in the overall church as it was spreading. Every, even they knew where the mother church was, Jerusalem, so to speak. Okay? And now all of a sudden, here comes this apostle coming into Paul and he's preaching to them. And we know that the number one struggle in relationships in the early church was this, this cultural clash between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, that was the biggest problem. You read through the book of Acts and it just comes out naturally. I like what he says. It's, not, it's been hidden for a while, maybe referring to the Old Testament prophets, but now it's revealed through the apostles and the prophets. 
by the Spirit. He's letting them know, here's my source. He's really referring back to chapter 2, verse 20. Turn back there for a second. Just not many verses before. Having been built upon the foundation of who? The apostles and prophets. Okay? Christ himself being the cornerstone. Here's the picture. Paul was used by God to help lay the foundation. The foundation of the church is what? It's not the apostles and prophets. They laid it. They built it. What did they build? This book that you have in your lap just one. Right? That's what he's getting at. He said, that's my source. God's my source. Through the Spirit. The source is the Holy Spirit. That which we was not able to be known is now totally known. Now, now, stop for a minute. Think about Ruth. Think about others. Just going in and out. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Going in and out? Think about Ruth for a minute. You, know, you have these little glimmers in the Old Testament of Gentiles, right, being part of the people of God, being saved. Okay? But now in the New Testament, it's full blown. Now we're seeing this thing really get full blown in the book of Acts here with Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's instilling confidence in them, letting them know that I am one of the apostles, and this is where I'm getting it from, Revelation, which is now known as the Word of God that we have in our laps this morning. So he's going uh, to great lengths to explain this to them, and I love what he says, in the Spirit. And if you want to know further about that, all you have to do is go to 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 and 20. 2 Peter chapter 1, it says this, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It's a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But Peter says, now know this first of all, that no prophecy is scripture. And that word means brothe, that which specifically is written, what you have in your laps. There's different Greek words for the word word. This one specifically means grafe, that which is written, not oral, but written. And he says this, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter is reiterating in his words, moved by the Spirit, what Paul is saying here in chapter 3 in our text this morning. Let's go on to number 4. A minister of the gospel, a preacher of the gospel, envisions, is one who envisions a new community. One who envisions a new community. Look at verse 6. He gives us the definition of this mystery. What the content of this mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. On the inside, God is conforming us into the image of Christ so that we look the same, while on the outside we look very different. You see, the world struggles with that, don't they? Because they only look at the outward appearance. And so when they see the outward cultural background differences, they do this all the time. They can't get along. Beloved, today is the day. This is the season for the church to rise up and say it can be done, but only in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? The servant is one who envisions not just individuals getting saved. You see, pastors, elders, it, when we look at you, when I, let's use myself, when I look at you, I look at you as individuals. 
but I also think of you and look at you collectively and how we get along with one another. It's a both and, not an either or. I care 100% about both, about you and your walk with Christ personally, but also you and your walk with others collectively in the church and the body of Christ. And so I'm constantly going back and forth, looking at you as an individual, but then taking a couple steps back and saying, how does this young man relate to others around him? Does he? So it's not just about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's having a corporate, I don't like to use that word in our business days, but you know, a, a community relationship with one another. Amen? Number five. Ministry is a result of God's power. Verse seven. Of which I was a made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace. He said that earlier on, didn't he? He's reiterating that. But this time he says, which was given to me according to the working of his power. It refers to the effectual working of God in Paul's life. You know what? At conversion, he was also commissioned. If you'd like to write down Acts chapter 9, this is where we have the record of Paul's conversion. But I want you to note in verse 15, in that setting, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Everybody. <laughs> I'm commissioning you to take the gospel everywhere, Paul. You're going to talk to all kinds of people. I don't care their background. I don't care their position, whether it's a king or a peasant. I don't care whether the Jew or Gentile, I don't care if Samaritan. It doesn't matter. Because my gospel is going out to the uttermost parts of the world. <laughs> Actually, this rolls into point number six. Point number six. The, the, the ministry of the word, the, the, the minister ministers the word with humility. It is humbling. Look at verse eight. This is where he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Why was it given? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Allow me to park here for a moment, if not for your benefit, for my own once again. This most likely could be an illusion, or probably is an illusion to Paul's name, because in the Latin, his name means little. Little. Did y'all know that? Probably little in Latin. Most likely Paul saw himself being insignificant in light of the one he was proclaiming. See, the preaching of God's word eventually was not about me, it's not about you, it's not about us, it's about our Lord, it's about Him. It's about proclaiming His greatness, His magnificence, His beauty. But I give this disservice if I would not go a little bit further than this and talk to you about Paul's progressive attitude towards himself. Because he had one, by the way. You see that throughout his life, he had a progression of thinking that went on. Before he wrote this, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he called himself least of the apostles. So he looked at the apostles and he goes, I'm the least. And then you get to Ephesians where we're at now, and he says, I am the very least of the saints. And actually, in the Greek, it means less than the least of the saints. It's like a double negative. Less of the least of the saints is actually what he's saying there. 
Then you get to the end of his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and he refers himself to the chief of sinners. In the beginning, he was just one of the least of the apostles. And then where we're at this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, he calls himself the very least of all the saints. And at the end of his life, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Beloved, listen, look at him. How can this be? How could this be? What an attitude. You know, as we grow in Christ, we also grow in what? Humility in our relationship with Christ. You see this progression? It's not like Pastor Jim, that is now 55, can look back and go, hey, look how far I've gone. Look where I've come from. Look how far along I am. Hey, look at me. I've really grown. You know how many times I've grieved over and grown enough? Besides, every and any ounce of maturity, any and every ounce of conformity to the image of Christ, I must before you give God all the glory. It's a work of His Spirit in my life. It's not by my power, but His. Not that I'm, I have no will, not that I have no responsibility, but in that responsibility, I am utterly still, utterly dependent upon God to ultimately do all the work. Even in my sanctification, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm joined in that. I've got now I'm a child of God. I'm a new creature. I have that responsibility. But I know that unless God born me again, unless I've been regenerated by His power, I never would even be in this position. So that no matter how far along I am in my Christian walk or my life, or how mature I become, I can go back and say it's all of grace. It's all of grace. God, you want to give you a desire to want to change. You've caused me to fall in love with Jesus. You open up my eyes to see how beautiful he is. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm responding to that. I've got responsibility with that. But and ultimately, that all that came from you. That's why Paul says in many of his letters, there's no boasting involved. There's no reason to boast. Gospel preaching, preaching the word of God, does not give a man a big head. It produces a humble heart. Here's why. Because he's not only preaching to others, he's preaching to himself. I can't tell you how many times I felt lousy preparing for a sermon. But also how grateful. Does that make sense? So as we grow upward in, in, our, in, our, in our relationship with Christ, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, there's something weird going on. I don't call it weird for the sake of being weird. There's, this, there's something that something really different is happening. We're also growing downward in humility as we grow upward in adoration of who God is. There's this going on here. Does that mean, and it happens in here. And that's what we see in Paul's life and his progression. Number seven, ministry exalts Christ. The end of verse eight, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Jesus Christ is the content. His richness. This is the message that he preached to the Gentiles. And they were unsearchable. The word means untraceable. Unable to track. Beyond measure is the idea going on here. 
Christ is the content of gospel preaching. Here, listen to this. Yes, we preach sin. We preach the law. We preach the need for Christ. But of all, above all else, we preach Christ. Yes, we preach against sin. We preach that we're sinners. Yes, we lift up the moral law of God so it exposes our sinfulness. Yes, yes, yes. And we preach that we need Christ, but above all else, we preach Christ. Yes, beauty. What good is it to tell people how, how depraved they are and not to show them the beauty of Christ? Oh, my blessed one who's just keep them there. Gospel preaching. The minister of the gospel, the pastor, the evangelist, they know, they understand that ultimately it's about exalting Jesus Christ and above all else, it's about proclaiming his righteousness. He is the sinless Savior, the sinless Son of God. He is the glory of the Father. He is the Alpha and Omega, and he is the only one, the only one that has the power to deliver you from your deadness and your sins. Number eight, it reveals the wisdom of God. Look at verses nine and ten. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Now why? Why, why do we preach to the Gentiles, the infallible riches of Christ, to bring to light this new administration of the mystery, the inclusion of Gentiles into the church of Christ? Why do we do that? Verse 10, so that, here's the purpose, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, as, you see, as the word of God is going forth, Jesus is building his church. He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And he's only one offensive weapon to do it's the word of God. And the gates of hell cannot, shall not, will not prevail. It might look like it on the outside with the naked eye. When we hear the news, we look at the church around us. It's, 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 it's debilitating. and It's a mess. Even the church is a mess. And we look and we go, how can it be built, being built? But it is because the word of God says so. By the naked eye, it might not look that way. From the kingdom of heaven, you better believe the church is being built. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus is sovereign. He's sitting on the throne. He's building his church. And the means by which he does that is the word of God. If this sermon does nothing else, this should elevate the word of God to its proper place in the church. In our church. In our midst. Now notice what it says that through the church, as, as the preaching of the word is the means by which Christ builds his church, something else is going on here. Look at the end of verse 10. To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. When the word of God is being proclaimed, it's not just human beings that are hearing and listening. Somebody else is. When the church is being formed, Jesus is building his church. And when the principalities and powers in the heavenly places watch and see, they see Christ building his church. They're watching. They're looking. They're hearing. They're seeing. I, I can't get around that here. As a matter of fact, if you want to go to chapter 6 for a moment, he, he brings this up again in chapter 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
So when you're proclaiming the word of God and Christ is building his church through the proclamation of his word, guess what? The principalities and powers of heaven are watching, taking notes. Because the mystery of God called the church, the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles, is being done. And they're looking and they're watching and they're going, oh my goodness. Now look at verse 11. Those who minister the word of God are involved in God's eternal purpose and plan. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has a purpose with the gospel. The purpose of his gospel is to produce his church, a, a, a separate, a new community of followers of Jesus Christ. And this is not something a divine afterthought. It's not like the fall happened and God said, now what do I do? Oh, there, it worked better that way. Now what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? I'm losing my glory. I'm not gonna... No. This was planned. This is an eternal purpose. In eternity past, God decreed it, ordained it, and he's carrying it out in Christ. So when the preacher preaches, he can get up with confidence because he knows the power of the book. It's not his power. The power of this word to change lives, to change your life, to change my life, to bring us together as one in Christ. Even though we come from different backgrounds and cultural experiences, those things just don't matter when we look and gaze at the beauty of Christ. And that leads to the last one. Ministry of the word is not for the faint of heart. I get that from verse 1 and 12 and 13. Verse 1 and 12 and 13. I love this. Paul is in prison. But he keeps going. He's writing letters. The word of God's going forth. He's in prison. You think, oh, ministry stopped. No, it did not. And notice verse 13. Even though he's in prison, he says, therefore, because of the ministry of the word, because of who God called me to be, he set me apart for the ministry of the word, to be an apostle to the Gentiles, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations. My suffering means your glory. It's resulted in you being part of the body of Christ. Don't faint. Don't lose heart. I'm doing it for you. Is it tempting for one to shrink back from one's responsibility in preaching the word? Yes, it's tempting. Even Paul, in the end of this letter, will ask for prayer, for boldness. He specifically says, I want you to pray that I'll be bold. So it wasn't like he was a perfect guy. Even he asked prayer requests for people to pray for him to be bold. But I want you to turn and we'll close with this. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1. Timothy, by the way, is a pastor where? <coughs> the church at Ephesus, correct? Yes. We're in the book of Ephesus. You notice what he says. In Second Timothy verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. This is sincere, which first dwell in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. The mother and grandmother brought him up in the admonition of the Lord. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The, I love the imagery of kindle afresh. You know what that's a picture of? You've got a fireplace in your home, and after many hours, all of a sudden it's barely glowing. The fire's gone down. It's smoldering. That's the imagery here. He's saying, let's throw some air on this. Let's get this flame going again, Timothy. 
but I want you to shrink back. The Greek word means I want you to be so cowardly more. But what was happening? He began to experience a lot more and more and more opposition. And that caused him to shrink back. In verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me as prisoner. They were saying, Timothy, what are you up to? This Paul of yours, he's in prison. Look where it got him. You get the flavor of this even as we go on to chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And I don't think Paul is just describing out there in the world, but in the church. That's the context here, this letter. Men will be lovers of self. Men are going to struggle with that. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, reviled. And he goes through this whole litany of, of sins and, and simple character. Beloved, that's not all. Look at chapter 4. We really understand the full picture now when we read this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God that if Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You preach it whether they want it or not. You preach it whether they want to hear it or not. No matter what they do, you preach it. You preach it. You're doing it for me. I enlisted you as a soldier. This is what you do. This is who you are. This is, this is how I build my kingdom. So don't shrink back from doing that. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove for the word of God. The preaching of God's word reproves. It rebukes at times and exhorts. You have great patience and instructions for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Oh boy, are we there today. But wanting to have their ears tickled. What does that mean? Give me what I want to hear. Not what I need to hear. Real simple, isn't it? And what will they do? Well, they're going to accumulate for themselves or gather around themselves teachers to give them what they want, not what they need. So they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss the myths. The reason I wrote these portions of 2 Timothy is because Timothy himself struggled. He struggled. He was shrinking back. He was losing heart. And we're told in Ephesians, don't do that. Even if it means imprisonment, don't lose heart because under the sovereign hand of God, you cannot shut up the word of God here. Amen? It should excite you. You've got nothing to fear. Here's my question. Do I, do you really trust God's word and face value? That's the real issue for the church today. Do I really believe it before I will stand on it and walk it, even if it makes me very uncomfortable. Do I really believe this? Oh. These are the characteristics of the nature of gospel ministry and gospel preaching and teaching God's word. And they bless you. 